We're studying through a series called What We Believe. And uh, we have studied through who God is in Trinity. We've talked about the baseline of Scripture as the norm for discovering uh, what we believe and why we believe it and why these things are important. And last week we talked about the image of God. And this week we're going to talk about the image of God. And we're following up and doing uh, a, a little more of a focused look on that, particularly in the issue of our brokenness. And what Jesus is doing to renew and remake us. Make us into the image that has been broken from the fall. So last week, the image of God in man. So if you missed that one, it's, it's the baseline off of which we're operating today. To see the nature of how we are broken and how Jesus is fixing us. The biblical concept of the image of God is not so much even the language I have used it, it, it makes sense to us. And so I, I want to shift that maybe just a little bit. It's not so much the image of God in man as though we aren't in the image of God, but we just contain the image of God. The biblical message of the image of God is that mankind is the image of God. Don't miss that because Jesus isn't just fixing a soul dismembered from a body Jesus in his work on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and his salvation is fixing man who is the image of God. It's a total work. Sin didn't wreck God. Can't wreck God. Impossible. But sin, the rebellion, did damage man who is the image of God. Sin broke us and broke all things. I even noticed in one of the songs, with our first song, it spoke to our brokenness being fixed and repaired. And it reminds me of one of my pet peeves of Christian subculture. I'm a great criticizer of Christian subculture because often it doesn't translate, even to other Christians. It doesn't translate to me. And it doesn't translate really outside the culture at all. And one of the things I hear often in Christian subculture is that they're praying for, and there is even a song when I was in college about asking God to break us. And I even remember one of the lines was, brokenness, brokenness is what I long for. Brokenness is what I need. Does anybody remember that song? I remember hearing that going, I'm already broke. Maybe, just maybe, it needs to be, Jesus, don't break me. I came, I was conceived broke. I was born broke, lived broke, am broke. What I need is Jesus to fix and repair. And so maybe even in our, our language, and, and, and just if you recognize that, don't, you don't, don't beat up anybody. They're just, I think I know what they mean by that, but it just doesn't translate even theologically or biblically accurate that I don't need to be broken any more than I'm broke. I'm broke pretty hard now. And what I recognize is that what Jesus has done in the kingdom is he is taking man in the image of God who is broken and he is repairing and restoring and renewing to a full, full manifestation of his image. And so what we want to do this morning is examine the fact that we're broken. And we want to then be encouraged that Jesus isn't leaving that alone if we're in him, but he is repairing his image in us. God... In the book of Genesis and, and outside of this series that we're doing, you know, we're studying through the book of Genesis and we've already we've gone a long way and we're going to finish that up starting in 2020. 
we've got a long way to go, right? Christmas will be here soon. Isn't that crazy? It's around the corner. It's awesome. Love it. In Genesis 1 and 2, God sets the baseline for what is normal. It's the baseline. It's the reference point for us to go back and see what is right and what is normal. And it contrasts with what the rebellious dark kingdom opposes and then will imitate encounter norms that appear to be and are presented as norms but in fact are death sentences. Genesis 1 and 2 is the baseline of what is normal. The dark kingdom, the rebellion, presents counter norms. Presents counter ideas that appear to be and are received by a fallen dark culture as norms. When in fact what they are are death sentences. Let me give you just a few examples here. The kingdom of light. Jesus' kingdom. Genesis 1 and 2. And by the way, what I did here is I went to the theological shelves of the Bible and just pulled stuff off, right? And, and there's no way we can do all of it, all right? Just know that on the front end. My caveat is this is not exhaustive. This is very limited. So I just went to the bookshelf of theological norms and just pulled a few down that come out of Genesis 1 and 2 and put them here for us to quickly look at. Now here's what the kingdom of light presents as norms. And what we're doing here is going to show you how this is broken. Here are the norms. God creates male and female as the image of God. And he creates that and says that's good. Male and female. Male and female, good. God creates male and female and he performs the the first wedding ceremony in Eden. And he brings male and female together as husband and wife as the basis and norm of societal life and says it's good. He takes male and female as complementary of one another and says that's good. He sets male and female as the basis of social order and says this is good. He gives male and female a task of subduing and filling and multiplying. And, 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 and this is, you know, you realize one of the ways, one of the beautiful ways we image forth Jesus is we're creators too. We don't create from nothing as Jesus did. He spoke and it came into existence. There's a fancy word for that called ex nihilo, from nothing. Jesus, there was nothing and Jesus spoke and it came to be. We can't do that. We can't do that. But as image bearers, we take what he made and we reform it into other things. We're creators. We're creators. And one of the ways he gave us to create is male and female is the baseline of social order. Get to multiply and produce other little image bearers. It's crazy. And he said, this is good. This is good. And then he made male and female as stewards, managers of created order. Gave us jobs. Gave us vocations. This is good. And even before the fall, there were restrictions. There were no's. Meaning, no's are good for us. There are boundaries, right? And oh, what needs to speak to us in this this weird place in which we live, which there are just no boundaries, and we're not bold enough to set them. If you don't set, and this this is a rabbit trail, if you do not set boundaries, any and everything will violate your airspace. 
If you don't set a boundary of the Sabbath, somebody will take it from you. And good things, they're not evil, but you can have too many good things, right? And sometimes no's are God's way of blessing and creating life. And he gave them a no. All the trees except one, eat from all of them. They're yours. Except this one. Do not take from it because the day you do, you'll die. And it was good. Boundaries are good. But the dark kingdom comes along and produces counter norms. Remember we said that already. They produce counter norms that appear to be norms, but in fact they're death sentences. And you see this first counter norm in Genesis 3.1, the second part of verse 1. Did God actually say? There's your first counter norm. It's the first counter norm of the dark kingdom. God said this, and the dark kingdom comes along and says, Did God really say that? Hmm. The next counter norm is in verse 4 of chapter 3. You will not surely die. Norm, good, do these things, don't do this one thing. Counter norm, did he really say that and does he really mean it? And will you really die? And so we see here already in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there's a counter dark kingdom set up and the promise that if you break these norms, if you step outside these norms, you will introduce evil and death and destruction into created order. King Jesus then, in being the good God that he is, introduces prophets to lead us to what is right. He introduces Noah. He introduces Abraham. He introduces Moses. He introduces Joshua. He introduces Samuel. He introduces David. And then the other prophets, particularly I'm going to read from Isaiah, who come and they represent the kingdom of right, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of good. Here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8 to 11. And now, go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. So Isaiah is now prophesying, he's sent from the Lord to speak about God's norms in face of what the dark kingdom has introduced as counter norms because these counter norms have now introduced death and destruction into all of created order and man is broken severely and in need of fixing but rather than do God's thing, God's way, fallen man and his brokenness goes with the counter norms and the counter kingdom and the dark counter norms. And so the Lord sends prophets to speak what is true. And listen to what the dark kingdom says in response to God's word to them on what is normal. Verse 10. These lying children who say to the seers, Do not see. Stop looking at what's right. And to the prophets, Do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things and prophesy illusions. Leave the way. 
Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Wow. And so we see very clearly that we're broke. We're broke bad. We're broke so much that in, in light of the clearly written, spoken norms of light, fallen, broken man likes darkness. And when we hear light, we say, don't say those things to me. Say smooth things and let's, let's hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Stop talking to me about Jesus. Just, just stop. Stop. Stop talking about what's right. I don't want to do that. So I think it's pretty clear that as we look at the Scriptures, we will discover that, that man is broken severely. And the image of God is broken severely because we are broken severely. Upon rebelling against the Lord in the garden, everything broke. Listen to what the Lord said would happen. This is Genesis 2, 15 to 17. The Lord, God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The only divine know. Don't eat from this one because if you do, there are consequences. And the consequences are that death and destruction are going to be introduced into all created order. And everything will be broken. So upon rebelling, and we know the story, our first parents rebelled. They went with the dark kingdom. They questioned what the Lord said. They questioned the consequence. They broke the boundary and introduced death and destruction into all created order. We broke, the air broke, the dirt broke, relationships broke, plants broke, animals broke, all things broke. So what are some of the things we can see? I'm just going to give us very quickly six ways, pulling off the the bookshelf of Scripture and ways that we're broken. And you could probably add thousands if you just go to the text and start pulling off observations about how we are broken. Here's the first one. I'm just going to pull it from Genesis 3.15. We have... Now, because of death being introduced in all created order, we have spiritual strife with the serpent and the serpent's followers. There's spiritual strife in the heavenly places. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Whose offspring? The serpent's offspring. The serpent has offspring? Yes. Jesus, in John 8, 44, his confrontation with the religious leaders of the day, says this, You are of your father, the devil. Meaning, one of the ways image brokers, are, brokers, image bearers are broken is that they're two sides. They're two kingdoms. And you're either in the kingdom of light, you're in the kingdom of darkness. You're in the kingdom of darkness, you're an emissary, an ambassador of darkness. Jesus even said it, of the religious leaders who ought to have known better, you are of your father, the devil. Not only does the enemy have a spiritual host that fight against the kingdom of light, he also has broken image bearers who are on his side. Jesus told this in the parables when he talked about the wheat and the weeds. He said they've been sown by the enemy. 
So there is spiritual strife with the serpent and his followers. Meaning, if you're in Christ, we wrestle not just against flesh and blood. Paul put that wrestling first and foremost primarily in that spiritual realm. But make no mistake, he speaks clearly to the fact that there's a strife because of that going on here. That make sense? And so one of the ways we're broken is we're, we have spiritual strife with the serpent and the serpent's followers. Don't write off spiritual conflict as a myth. It is at, I would even go so far as to say you can't read your Bible and take it seriously and ignore spiritual conflict. If we do, it is one of Satan's greatest wins that we fight a battle we don't believe exists. So it's one of the ways we're broken. Number two, there's increased pain in marital strife. To the woman, he said, this is Genesis 3.16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. I take that to mean even before the fall, childbearing would be hard. Post-fall, worse, harder. In pain, you'll bring forth children. And tales we could tell. Difficulty, hardship, even death, pain. And then he says this, your desire, same word he's going to use in chapter 4, speaking about sin, wanting to have people. Your desire will be contrary to your husband and he will rule over you. Meaning there's conflict. So, so death is introduced into multiplying and it's introduced in this beautiful relationship between husband and wife. We don't need to unpack that. We know that. Jennifer and I will be leading them with Brody Holloway and guys at Snowbird in October. A couple of marriage retreats on back-to-back weekends. And, um, and so, you know, we've survived 20 years in ministry. And sometimes in spite of ourselves. And we were going to our first scrimmage of the year down uh, in Carrollton. Uh, and going to watch the boys play football. And on the way, we were, we were fighting. We were arguing. And uh, Jennifer just basically says, like, we have no business being in front of anybody talking about marriage. I'm like, pretty good point. Pretty good point. But then I, I quickly said, you know, actually, that's the reason we need to be in front of people. Is because God in His grace has mediated. Like, if you think about getting married, sin plus sin does not equal less sin. There's this weird thing, like, if I just get married, it's going to be better. No, it's going to be harder. Sin plus sin does not equal less sin. Sin plus sin is more sin. That's how math works, right? And so it's not going to get better, except for maybe that little tiny honeymoon period. If you stick this out, it's going to be hard. And there's going to be conflict. And so that's all the more reason to say, in spite of us, in spite of the difficulty of bearing parents, doing ministry, Knives stuck in your back, marginalized, in all manner of things. We still happen to love and like each other, and we've done a pretty good job raising three boys. So you know what? That's all the more reason. So here's my point. It's been hard. It's been difficult. And that's because things are broke. She's broke. I'm broke. You're broke. We're all broke. And we're in great need of Jesus fixing. So there's increased pain and marital strife. So don't be surprised when it's hard. Broke plus broke. Doesn't equal less broke. 
Number three, we have a difficult time in subduing created order, and death then waits all of us. Feeling a little down, it's like, oh my gosh, this is all bad stuff. Sin is bad. Sin never works out to our advantage. It is never to our advantage to wonder, did God say, will that really affect me? We have a difficult time subduing created order and death awaits all of us. Genesis 3, 17 to 19. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree that I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you'll eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it'll produce for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You were dust and to dust you return. Adam, you've got to eat from the ground. The ground's not cursed. And it's going to not just produce fruit, it's going to produce unfruitful things. And oh, by the way, you're going to go back to the dust, you're going to die. So we have a difficult time subduing created order. You wonder why your job's hard? Sin. The curse. Which is why there's no such thing as an easy vocation. At every turn, we are dealing with chaos and brokenness. One of the beautiful things about the kingdom is when Jesus repairs all of that, we will spend eternity working in our vocations with no sin. New heaven, new earth, not cursed, perfectly producing. That, that, that I'm, I'm in for. That's good. Number four, we can and often do then make God in our image. As creators, broken creators now, we want to take God and we want to reform Him in our image. Check, it, check out Romans 1, 18 to 25, but particularly but particularly verse 21 to 25. I will flip over and take a a moment to read that because I find it fascinating. I find it absolutely fascinating that of all the things in the Old Testament that I wish God would address, I even wrote in my journal this week, it seems like God bypasses polygamy and harems And he doesn't address it. And it bothers me. But he goes right to their idolatry. And it's not that God is bypassing sin. Because you go back to the baseline of Genesis 1 and 2. The baseline is clear. And what caused the breaking was another God. Someone else to worship. Someone else to obey. And that was the dark kingdom. And so what you begin to discover as you read through the text, it's not that God bypasses those things. It's He's going to the heart of what produces them. And it's the idolatry of either the dark kingdom as your God, you as your God, or some other deity that is no deity that you worship. He's addressing the root issue. And this is why Paul addresses this in Romans 1. The root of even sexual identity... It's not sexual identity. It's worshiping a God you made in your image. There's a worship issue. Listen to Romans 1, 21 to 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So in other words, the more I turn away from God, the darker my heart gets. 
claiming to be wise. They, they're smart. This is smart. They're producing smart things, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged, here's the result, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. So what's the root of these things? It's the exchanging of God as who He is for something made in my image or even worse, the image of created order. This is a result. This is how broke we are. How broke we are. Number five, we use then, we use our speaking and communicating, which by the way, this is part of being in the image of God. God's a communicating God. He's a speaking God. This, this, from the very beginning of Genesis 1 and 2, God what? He speaks and His Word and by His Word He makes. God's Word is central in the Bible because God's decrees, God's Word is the baseline of what is right. And God made us in His image and made us created people who then can communicate and speak. And being able to communicate and speak is part of what it means to be in the image of God. We then take this image of God, glorious ability, and we turn it into a dark kingdom ripoff to hurt other image bearers. Rather than speech blessing, we use it to curse. James 3.9. With it, speaking of the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. So, praise Jesus. And then with it, we curse people made in the likeness of God. That's why the Proverbs will say life and death is in the power of the tongue. Because it is a creation tool to speak and to create life with words from God, from God's word. That's why Paul will tell them, you sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Speak the word of the Lord to one another. Because that word that created all things gives life. We don't carry that. The Word carries that. So we're so broke that we turn an image of God glory into something that hurts other people. Sixth and finally, we can be deceived into a false sense of identity. As broken people, we can be deceived into a false sense of identity. I have discovered one of the keys to growing in Christ is recognizing who I am in Christ. Identity is a big deal. God speaks to that issue of identity when He names us. Naming is a God thing. It's something God does. And then when God gives Adam the task of naming, Adam is operating in his image-bearing capacity by exercising dominion and authority over and speaking identity to. So when God created man and said man, He spoke identity to men. When he created woman and said woman, he spoke identity to women. And when he called us image bearers, he spoke identity to us. When we are redeemed in Christ and he calls us sons and daughters, he speaks identity to us. And one of the ways we express brokenness is we take Genesis 1, 26 to 28, create an image of God and given a creation mandate. We flip it. truth is our identity is we're created by God for God. The dark kingdom says you might not be created. You may simply be evolved and you're really for yourself. Identity flipped. We're created male and female for each other. 
We can be deceived into not knowing what we are. And culturally reading onto ourselves identities we are not. This is why, as Christians, we have to have our minds transformed by the gospel so that we think clearly and soberly about what God says and that begins to transform what we think and then how we operate. We begin to have a false understanding of masculinity. Even inside Christian subculture, we can falsely identify masculinity as broken people. The unfortunate thing is in so much of Christian subculture, we identify masculinity as with killing things and grunting and playing sports. And that's not the essence of masculine identity. It's not. It's reject passivity, lead courageously, accept responsibility, expect God's reward. There's a lot of deer-killing, grunting, football-toting people who are passive. And they let other people lead when they ought to be leading. They sit quiet when they ought to speak. It's not manly. They don't lead courageously. They follow at a distance. Rather than setting the pace, they lag behind. Rather than being on time, they're late. That's not manly. Just because you can kill something and grunt and grow hair on your face does not make you a man. You can be a rogue child boy. So the fall breaks masculinity into false identity. I can grow hair on my face and kill things. I'm a man. No, you're not. I can lift weights. So what? Can't lead your family. You're not a man. So the fall breaks those things. That make sense? False sense of identity. I'm a man because I lift weights. No. Right? We have a false sense of femininity. Right? Pink bows and frill isn't necessarily womanly. Deborah, as far as I can tell, didn't wear any bows. She had a sword strapped on her thigh. And told Barak, unless you get up and do this, it's going to be said that a woman delivered Israel. So get after it. Seriously. It's in the book of Judges, right? And so we can read on the femininity things that aren't there. and Because we're broken. Don't even get me started on how that takes us down the road of ripping off and absolutely obliterating a biblical idea of marriage and a marriage ceremony even. If you want to see a funny take on that, go YouTube Jim Gaffigan talking about weddings. It's hilarious. But at the end of it, you're like, oh my gosh, he's right. He's right. Because they were broke. And that brokenness takes what is God's and produces a dark counter norm. And we just think it's normal because it's in the bridal magazine. We think it's normal because it's on the news. Or even better, it's right because it's on the conservative news website or the conservative news channel. Or it's wrong because it's on the liberal one. And we're just products of a culture that's broken when we think like that. Because we're broke. Another way is we have a false understanding of then marriage and marriage relationships and marriage order. Marriage, one man, one woman for life. That's the norm. The dark kingdom says one man, one man. One woman, one woman. Too confused. And, and, and that's not funny. This is a serious issue in our time. And we need to learn to think deeply on it because it's a confused sense of identity. Because we are Christians and we have the Bible and it is the manual. 
And so this dark counter-narrative creates all this brokenness. We have a false understanding of those things. False understanding of children and their role in order. Children don't rule the roost. They are to be little image bearers multiplied as arrows in the quiver to send to the nations. Not to be coddled and played and prepared to live the American dream. They're arrows in the quiver to extend our range beyond our death. So train them as such. Well, that's how we're broke. You're like, geez, I wish you'd get to some good news. Well, I got two minutes and 51 seconds to do that. How is Jesus fixing this? How is Jesus repairing this brokenness? Well, the good news is he is. Christmas is the invasion of the kingdom of God. I think in terms of war history, because I was raised with the Depression generation and World War II and all that stuff, and so I just, D-Day is my frame of reference. Can't help it. So for many of you people, you have maybe no clue what D-Day is. If you don't repent and believe the gospel and go you go go wiki something, it, look it up, Google it, do something. D-Day was where the Allies decided the plan is put in place and Overlord is launched and from the first time the boots hit the sands at Normandy, there was the invasion of the good guys to unseat the bad guys. Christmas is that. It's not this winter holiday where we're walking in a winter wonderland. It is, it is the dark kingdom has received the first boots of an invasion. And light comes and takes on flesh. The eternal Son of God, Jesus, the one in whose image we are created, comes and He takes on flesh. And He is life, and He is light, and in Him is life. And He came to His own, and His own received Him not. But to all those who received Him, He gave them power to become sons and daughters of God. That's Christmas. The kingdom invades. And the kingdom begins to take ground as the Son of God casts out demons and heals and preaches the good news of the kingdom. And they say, don't talk to us about those things, Jesus. We've got to get rid of him. He's threatening our darkness. So they put him on a cross. By the way, at the will of the Father. And he goes and he dies in the place of sinners for their sin. And he's buried in a borrowed tomb. But you can't keep life dead. And on the third day, he rose. And then he ascended to heaven where he rules today and reigns and offers. If you repent and believe, you can be mine. Right? He is fixing all things. The kingdom has come. The kingdom's not coming. It has come. You are the first fruits of the new heaven and the new earth. Okay? So if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Paul's borrowing that language from Isaiah. The new creation has already come. It's not just the earth being repaired. It's you because you came from the dirt. Right? And so you have been renewed. You tracking with me here? So Jesus is fixing this. And the key is entrance into his kingdom through repentance and faith. We see this in Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He has delivered us. He has delivered us. He's not just going to deliver us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
So listen to this. If you're in Christ this morning, God has delivered you from darkness. You have been delivered. That's a statement of fact. You are no longer in the dark kingdom, but you're in the kingdom of the sun. This is a reality. And here here is the most important tool I'm going to pass you today. You ready? Ears open, paying attention, sitting up, looking at me. Right here. Ready? If you doubt this or it doesn't feel like it, be wise enough to question your doubt. Question the feeling. Far too often we get put down with good answers to awful questions. Ask the right question. A good answer to a bad question will not help you. The right answer to the right question will heal you. Question your doubt. Does God love me? Does God care for me? That's the doubt. How do you question that? Why am I having that thought? Where did that thought come from? Who's saying that to me? That's not me. That's not even what I believe. Where did you come from? What is your source? What is your mission? What is your purpose? You you tracking? Question your doubt. Because the Bible tells us here that he, if you're in Christ by repentance and faith, he took you from darkness and set you into light. And when darkness begins to invade light, ask it a terrible question. Where did you come from? C.S. Lewis even taught this. And he wasn't even a good reformed theologian. Question your questions. Question the presupposition of your questions. Just because you have a question doesn't mean it came from Jesus, nor does it mean it's legitimate. Question your questions. Question the doubt. Question the feeling. I want to put, I want to put this footnote. Questioning that doubt and that feeling may not alleviate you in the moment. But it is how you fight and keep fighting and stay fighting till Jesus either puts you in the grave and finishes you and heals you at that moment or finishes you and heals you in this life. But it is the tool to keep fighting. It's the weapon you shoulder. It's the knife in your hand. It is how you go to war as you question the question. And you go to the word and you say, I have been delivered. This is a non-delivering question. It didn't come from Jesus. Colossians 3, 9 to 10. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices. Put off the old self, right? And it put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after its creator. Right? So we see here in this first part is the reality is we've been set in Christ. We're in his kingdom. And the second part is this active obedience. It's the Colossians 3, 9 to 10. There's a role we have to play. And is you have to take off the old and put on the new. Paul says it here in this Colossians 3, 9 to 10 passage. And he says it again in Ephesians 4, 20 to 24. But that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So this old life, this dark counter kingdom, this dark set of counter norms is corrupt through deceitful desires because I have the desire doesn't mean it comes from the Lord. 
this dark kingdom has corrupt desires. And he said, in Christ, you've been taught to take that off and then put on something else. Right? Verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So we have to believe the right things, that we're in Christ and we've been transferred to the kingdom. Then there's an active role, and that active role is we have to take off the old and put on the new. The language of these two passages gives us a sense, even in the parsing of the grammar, that this is something we have to do. Jesus has, in his miraculous way, set us in himself and transferred us to the kingdom. But this body's still with me, isn't it? It's still here. Feel it? I'm in Christ, but this thing still likes stuff it shouldn't like. So what am I supposed to do? Take it off and put on the new. Now, I don't know if you noticed or not, but I can't detach this. That's on. And if I detach it, we got a problem. So this is figurative language for something important, and it's this. It is the spiritual disciplines. It is we take off the old and put on the new by participating and actively shedding things that are dark and putting on things that are light. And here's how we're going to wrap this time up. Is give you some things to do to take off the dark and put on the light. Don't assume you have all the knowledge of God you need. Get to know Him more. In the eternal kingdom, you're going to spend eternity staring in the face of Jesus and never get enough. Revelation 21. Eternity, forever. We are going to stare into the face of the eternal Son of God and never know everything we need to know, much less now. Don't assume you know everything you need. Don't be arrogant and say, I've got a Grudem systematic theology. I know what I need to know. You know nothing. At best, at best, you may have begun, just begun to get an instrument in your hand to scratch the surface. You're not even scratching the surface. You just have an instrument to start scratching the surface. The infinite knowledge of God and staring into the glory of God is the key to being transformed. You ever notice in the Old Testament when people stared into the face of God, they came away glowing? Paul uses this language in 2 Corinthians that the way we are transformed into the image of Christ is staring into the face of the holiness of God. And listen to me, you can't do that with 20 minutes a day. I'm sorry. I wish I could give you a microwave solution. If you're going to put on the light, you're going to have to put some boundaries up for the Sabbath. And some boundaries up for a daily time in which you stare into the face of God and you lose yourself in the majesty of God. See, the key to so much of this is losing. We think far too much of ourselves. I wish, I wish we could take a log of how often daily we thought of merely ourselves. The key to being transformed into Christ is looking at Him and sustaining a gaze on glory. I'm going to tell you something, that takes time. It's the spiritual disciplines, it's the things the Bible teaches about fasting, about prayer, about silence, about solitude. Here, here, you ready? Just go read the Gospels and imitate everything Jesus does. That's where you start, just do what Jesus did. 
Jesus got up early. He went and spent time with the Father. He prayed. And he did it while it was still dark so nobody would mess with him. I was having that conversation with somebody this week. Hey, what, what are you doing? Like, you know, here's the deal. I try not to tell people when to read their Bible. Because I understand we're all wired different. Some of y'all go to work and y'all start working efficiently at 1 in the morning. And I say, y'all crazy. And you go to bed at 9, get up at 5, you'd be good to go, right? And so I know that's not how it works for everybody. I get it. But just if you need to set a discipline standard, just do what Jesus did. I understand it's hard. That's why it's called a discipline. But you want to stare into the face of Jesus, you've got to set aside a time to be uninterrupted and open His Word and pray and seek His face. And Jesus, it says in the manual, right? Those who seek me with all their heart. Jeremiah 29, not 11. Everybody knows that one. It's on down the line. If you seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me. One of the reasons we don't get glimpses into glory in 10 minutes is because that's not really seeking. You ever notice what you do when you're really looking for something? We're getting ready to take a little anniversary trip. We're going to Toronto. And I forget Toronto's an international trip. Because it's like, it's a shorter flight to Toronto than to Dallas-Fort Worth. That blows your mind. And I was like, I need my passport. Oh, where's my passport? Oh, no. And you know how long I looked for that passport? Wasn't five minutes. I put all things on hold, canceled out the calendar, canceled stuff, put everything aside, and I went to work until I found that passport. Why? Because I had to have it. You need to look on Jesus, you'll go see him. But you're not going to find him in a five-minute brisk drive-by, fly-by. Jesus, by the way, can you give me what I need? Boom. When you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. One of the ways we put on the new is we've got to not assume the knowledge of God, but come after knowing more of Jesus Christ. You've got to put off the former manner of life that's corrupt. The way you do that is you've got to self-evaluate. Are there any internally bad habits that are wrecking my thinking? What do you think about yourself? What are my internal bad habits? What are processes that start me down a path that get me in trouble? And you know what? The crazy thing is I could get more detail, but I hunch is the Holy Spirit's already showing you what that is right now. You know what those internal processes are. You know what triggers and starts moving you down a path. And then external habits that feed contrary desires of the kingdom. What are they? And then we've got to put on the new self. Be intentional. Be intentional about hearing and obeying. He who hears these words of mine and does them is a wise person who builds your house on the rock. Discipleship is very simple. It's hear the Lord and obey the Lord. Hear the Lord, obey the Lord. Intentionally. This is why you hear me say this all the time. I'm going to say it again and I'm going to say it until we do it. You don't need another Bible study. What you need is to spend time obeying what you already know. The key to meeting Jesus on the road is doing what he said. Not gathering up and finding out again what he already said. We get these thrills. Oh, Jesus said that. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, he said it. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, let's go to work. And then the next day. Man, didn't Jesus say that? Jesus said that. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. No, no, no. That's not what you need to do. You need to go do what you know. The key to growing in Christ is meeting him in the public square by doing exactly what he said to do. I want to challenge you this week to do Luke 10, 1 to 12. If you don't know what Luke 10, 1 to 12 says, go read it and just do it. I promise you it'll be the greatest adventure of your life.
Attempt it. Just try it. Literally, word for word. Give it a shot. It'll be awesome. It will be absolutely cool. Practice obedience. And as we practice obedience, our mind is being renewed by Scripture. It's just how it works. What did Paul tell us in Romans 12, 1 to 2? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? You renew your mind by planting the word deep in your heart that you might not sin against him and then doing what it says. And as you obey what the scripture says, there's just something about that that drives that truth down into your soul. And then you become a creature of good habits. Habits aren't bad, like eating, exercising, sleeping, resting. Good habits, right? right? The habit of obeying Jesus is a good habit. And when you just drive into your practice obeying Jesus at every turn, it is crazy the glory you will see. And finally, worship in every circumstance. Man, the clock in the it's off. It's not even on. It's off. Sorry. Practice worshiping in every season. Worship isn't just for the highs. It's also for the lows. Job. Job's response to the loss of everything, he worshiped. David's response to gaining a kingdom, he worshiped. In other words, worship isn't just for when we feel good. Worship's when all for when all things are falling apart. And if we become worshipers in those moments, in those extremes, and everything in between. We're well on our way to taking off the old and putting on the new. Because we're practicing for forever. Let's fight against brokenness by doing these things. And let's ask Jesus, don't break me no more, Jesus. Would you fix me up? Would you make me new? Father, we want to ask in Jesus' name that you will, even in this moment of worship, keep working on us and make us new. Lord, there's nobody unbroke in this room. But there are a lot of people in this room being renewed and are taking off the old and putting on the new. So, Lord, we're going to practice here. We're going to practice taking off the old and putting on the new by singing to you. We'll practice it. So, Lord, I ask that you would make it effective. Holy Spirit, that you would take that practice and you do something supernatural in it and make it work. Whatever you do and however you do it, we just want to submit to you that we request you do that for us. As we practice the discipline of singing, there are all manner of emotions in this room right now. From the bottom to the top. And I just want to ask you, Lord, as we practice putting on the new, that you make it effective. Would you do that? And I want to remind you, you said when we ask in your will and in your name, you do it. That's clearly in your will and it represents your kingdom and your name. So would you just please do that this morning and let us taste a little glimpse of a win feed our faith, and then be glorified, be exalted as a result of it. Would you do that right now? We pray in Jesus' name.